Welcome back to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. Today I have on with me Zach and Josh from Data Driven Strength. We had a really great conversation about powerlifting, the mechanisms of hypertrophy, mixing strength training and hypertrophy training, and some other cool stuff like that. So if you're interested in a bit more of the nuance out of stuff, and maybe you're somebody who also wants to get stronger and bigger, or bigger and stronger, then this episode is for you. So if you are watching on uh, YouTube or listening, just tag us and put it on your social media stories. Help spread the, the message of of the podcast so we can get it out there, get it shared to more people. And if you are interested in a free natural bodybuilding course, which loads of free resources in there, even if you're just getting back to the gym, it's actually pretty good. You can check that out in the show notes. But without any more delay let's get into this conversation with data driven strength so guys thanks a lot for coming on the podcast it's uh great to finally have you on appreciate you having us dude looking forward to it adam so for those who don't know who you are and this is the first time of hearing of uh data driven strength do, do you guys want to introduce yourself go for it josh i was i was just gonna say go for it zach but all right i'll do gotcha. this one um yeah so we were both uh, current master's students and research assistants um, at Florida Atlantic University, uh, assisting with research in the Florida Atlantic University's muscle physiology lab. Uh, Zach and I uh, met doing our undergraduate exercise science degrees at Ohio State University, and then we came down here and we we started or Zach started data driven strength, and then I later hopped on board a few years ago. And you know, we just we work with. Uh, primarily powerlifters. Um, but as I'm sure we'll get to today, um, it's, it's definitely not mutually exclusive with, with hypertrophy training. Right. So, um, you know, we work, we work with powerlifters and we also aim to, to hopefully provide some, some half decent educational content as well. So nothing that <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, uh, yeah. So, so Zach, I assume your, your introduction is going to be pretty similar. Yeah. I just, that's essentially same as me. So yeah. we'll, we'll just we'll get into the fun conversation now and quit talking about ourselves. Cool. Yeah. So, so w- what does that, well, obviously the, the name of your company kind of makes sense, but why did you come up with that name? What, how is it different from what's already out there? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, originally, you know, we kind of got into, you know, combining fitness with research, which a lot of people have kind of gotten to that evidence-based scene uh, recently. Um, I think as we've kind of learned more and and kind of broke down the barriers of realizing that, you know, science and the formal research process is just another tool and another source of data um, and, and kind of the wider scope of, you know, including anecdote and uh, expert opinion to that as well. Um, I think it just kind of means like using um, the entire process of both subjective and objective data to help us you know, improve training outcomes. Um, is kind of is kind of where uh, we've kind of landed on that, but yeah, it started with you know kind of combining research and and strength and, and and trying to you know get the best for our clients and lifters um, with that. But since we've kind of expanded that and just realized that you know research is obviously a very important part to the process, but not to neglect the very important uh, subjective uh, anecdotes and, and and opinions of experienced lifters who have been doing this for a really long time. Mm. Yeah, I think you can you can, people can kind of get carried away with that and as you probably know, like evidence-based is that it's almost like if you're not evidence-based, you're on the outside now these days 
I don't know if it's just like who you follow, then you've that's kind of influences what you what your your sphere and what you see. But it's like sure. evidence base is almost like it's like the it's like something that evidence can be anything, you know, like you said, and right. it, like yeah, like oh yeah, it's uh, I run faster when it rains. It's evidence, you know. <laughs> it's like so. Well, yeah, this this might be a kind of a post hoc rationalization of the name of our company, but we kind of like to give a bit of an unfalsifiable definition of like what constitutes data. So, you know, if, if you just think data driven, what does that mean? Your head immediately goes to publish research, but we like to think of, you know, that, that bucket of data that's informing training decisions and, and how we communicate things as more than just the published published research. Right. It of course includes that as well as understanding the limitations of those, of those research findings um, you know, the, the, the limitations of the scientific method in and of itself, and, you know, some of the practical limitations of conducting research as well, but also training data also, or, uh, data also includes, like Zach said, um, anecdotes, but of course, weighing those probably to a different degree than, than research findings. Um, and then when you're working with an individual, what goes into data on the individual level is going to be more than just the published research findings, right? Because, Another evidence-based opinion is that the the individual response may very well uh, diverge from the average response that uh, research is ultimately looking to to kind of investigate. So again, maybe a, a bit of an unfalsifiable way of of defining data, but I think it's more than just, hey, was this outcome statistically significant or not in this certain study? Yeah, then then we can even question the the p value whether it's uh, whether it's something that sh- should should be used or or whatever but um we we won't get into that <laughs> but yeah so it's like i think it's like i questioned this before when i when i first started say following like the likes of alberto nunez and and those guys you, you know them um years ago on like bodybuilding.com forums because social media wasn't big when i was like a teenager and uh, that's where i followed a lot of uh, got a lot of information and one thing that I noticed is because I, I really like um, like open bodybuilding or untested body, like, you know, IFBB pro. I, I like to watch the freaks, you know, it's, it's cool. Um, and it's to be honest, in my opinion, um, I actually prefer to like, look, look at these guys uh, arguably they're more genetically gifted as well. Then it's kind of like the cream rises to the top almost. And they mm-hmm. make a career out of it money. So they do what needs to be done. Same as any sports, you know, top cyclists, top runners, like we've all seen Icarus, um excellent yeah um you know that's just the kind of the way it is but one thing that i noticed was that these guys follow don't really follow say published science as much and i questioned was why was it in like the natural bodybuilding community that they're all about the science or following it and i think it boils down to is like the people who can't get results naturally or i'd say naturally i mean just like genetically aren't as gifted they kind of need to put more effort into crossing the t's and dotting the i's to squeeze that extra five percent out whereas those who are just are going to be the best in the world don't really need to worry about it i think and and because of they get the eyeballs and people like extremes you know, we like to see the extreme in the news. We see the extreme best or the extreme worst, and that becomes our reality. That people follow these people. This pro- it, I, I'm assuming it's very similar in, in strength sports. Um, 
that you, you know the guys who are not all of them but I, I know it's starting to science is starting to creep more into the this industry even at the top level but a lot of these guys get the results in spite of what they do with the the less than optimal kind of training plan or nutrition plan or lifestyles and they and people then think that's the that that's the way to do it and what what are your opinions on that i i've actually thought about this recently so i'll, I'll jump in here um i think i think you hit the nail on the head there adam just kind of like if i'm not if i can't if i'm not the type of guy that can walk through a gym and just get way bigger and way stronger probably going to take a little bit more of an analytical approach um and and something that i always like to keep in mind is that um, you know, we were kind of talking about like individual responses a little bit ago to, to resistance training interventions. Something that we do also find is that um, indivi- like if, if, if you have a study design in which one leg is doing a certain training protocol and the other leg is doing another training protocol, if you kind of look at the individual data, you kind of can gather that people that are high responders in one protocol are probably have a higher likelihood of being high responders in another protocol. So again, that's not to say that if you were a low responder in one leg and kind of, you know, making appropriate changes to your program, you can become, you know, you can actually respond to the training. But basically what it boils down to is I think high responders are going to be high responders. Um, so that's just something I like to keep in mind. And another another point here is that there are a ton of ways to get bigger and stronger. Um, you know, there, there can be like completely opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of training philosophy and people still get bigger and stronger through both of those avenues. And there's probably a bit of like a selection process there of maybe the, the type of mindset, like what makes that individual tick? If that individual like really got into training because it's, it's an outlet for them and they really like training to failure. And that's just kind of what makes them put effort in and, and continue to show up. Maybe they're going to go down, you know, maybe a different route than somebody that comes to us. And uh, they're like, Hey, I've, I've really struggled with managing fatigue. Is there, is there any way, uh, you know, we can kind of adjust the protocol to get the, the a sufficient dose of training and still progress. So I think there's a bit of a selection process there as well. And just keeping in mind that there are a lot of ways to get stronger and, and there's no one size fits all approach is, is kind of where my head goes. That's, that's essentially what I was going to say. I kind of thought about it in terms of like, uh, other sports like basketball or whatever we were talking about a little bit off air. Like if you have super elite athletes and they go into the gym or whatever, and they're just going to work super hard and you're going to tell them that their program isn't optimal from a mindset perspective. And, and from an expectation perspective, they're going in, they're working hard, they're doing the work. And I would imagine those people that are high responders generally have, have a mindset that they essentially know they're going to get positive results because they've always been that way. They work hard. They, they put their mind to something. Um, they have those psychological expectations that are ultimately going to benefit their physiological outcomes, which um, I think is something that gets overlooked a lot of the time. So it's, it's almost having like that kind of that killer instinct, um, you know, that a lot of great athletes have Michael Jordan, those kind of guys that are, you know, you're not going to tell Michael Jordan that he's not, you know, practicing his free throws in the most optimal configuration to, to better his thing. He's going to go and shoot a hundred of them. It doesn't matter how he does. He's going to get better because he knows the second he walks in the gym, that's what's going to happen. So I think that kind of similar uh, mindset can, can cross over into kind of our realm of like strength sports and bodybuilding in the sense that, you know, some people may not have the most optimal quote unquote configuration of training, but that may be outweighed by the fact that psychologically they just know it's going to work. And, and they're going to go in and put in a ton of effort. And ultimately, I think that's still going to benefit them in the long run. So that was another thing I thought of. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I'm sure you guys know people who do everything by the book, so to speak, but they just don't have the mindset to, like, even even if they have prescribed ORIORs or RPEs or something like that, you they you just know that they're not actually hitting that or that they, mm-hmm. like because it's such a subjective measure, it's like, oh yeah, for me, that was a, a six or something. But in reality, they, they someone with a, let's say a, a bigger drive or something like that, let's say they could probably push it more and, and reality get to what objectively a six or something would be. So I think it's a good point. I think just hard work and consistency for a lot of people, especially those with genetics is, is gonna, is gonna be the, the biggest determinant factor. Um, but obviously it can be detrimental for some people. So to, to jump into uh, like strength training versus training for size, I know a lot of people will be interested in saying getting bigger and stronger. And often those two things can kind of get mixed up thinking, well, I need to get bigger and I need to get stronger um, or sorry, I need to get stronger to get bigger or or vice versa. So what's the difference between training for both? I know that training for hypertrophy can be pretty you know, there's a pretty wide range of things you can do, but maybe it's a little bit different for training for strength. And when we're talking about strength, we're talking about like lifting in the gym, not like, you know, being able to pick up a car or something like that. Let me kick it off, Josh. Give it a shot. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think obviously it's a big question. Um, I think um, the first thing is kind of, like you said, Adam, it's important to kind of define what we're talking about in terms of strength. And I think uh, if we're kind of going to define this in the powerlifting context, um, it's, it's important to realize that there's a ton of factors that go into the demonstration of a one RM. Um, it's not, you know, as simple as, you know, just input output. There's, you know, you have neuromuscular factors that are unrelated to muscle size. You have technical execution, psychological factors. Um, and, and then obviously the contribution of muscle size, which I guess to get out of the way at the start of the podcast here is like, that is somewhat debated in the research in terms of the, the, the correlation or the causative nature of an increase in muscle size from training and how does that relate to an increase in muscle strength? Um, I think the, I, I can fully respect and understand the perspectives of individuals that say there is no relationship between the two. I would take the side of saying that there is not a necessary nor sufficient relationship, but it's contributory, meaning it's one of many factors that can result in an increase in strength. So I think just from the start of the podcast, that is somewhat of an assumption we're making in saying that we think that there is a contributory relationship between muscle size and muscle strength, meaning that if we are going to train for strength, there's going to be some sort of hypertrophy oriented training in a program that we would write because we think that is one of the factors that is ultimately going to lead uh, to one RM strength. But I think um, the, the most important thing I just wanted to get off first here is that strength is always measured in a specific context. So that's the the most important thing. And just saying that, you know, like you said, a one RM car deadlift and a one RM squat, I would train for those differently because the the way that we're defining strength in that context is slightly differently, but um, hopefully that was a decent ramble to get us started. But Josh, go ahead. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of piggybacking off what Zach said, I think the, so, so there, there's skill to hypertrophy training for sure, but there's definitely skill to a one rep max deadlift or a one rep max squat, right? So I think um, you, you definitely have less options when training for strength, because like Zach said, strength is kind of a nebulous term, unless you're defining what the strength task is, right? So you're just inherently going to have less options. If you're a power lifter, you're probably going to squat bench and deadlift. Um, and then, you know, kind of on the flip side of that is that I, I think 
uh, I, we, we like to frame hypertrophy training as definitely being more forgiving. So there are a ton of ways that you can get quote unquote optimal or at least near optimal hypertrophy outcomes. Somebody that doesn't have a lot of time um, to train, they can, they can do, they can be very efficient with hypertrophy training. Um, now it's not to say they're going to eke out every last, you know, microgram of, of muscle mass in their training career, but you know, one set taken to true, uh, concentric failure, that can be a, a, a very effective training program. Now, do we think that spending more time in the gym, probably keeping some, some reps in reserve and doing multi-rep protocols is better? Yeah, probably. But point being is hypertrophy is very forgiving, right? You can use heavy loads, you can use lighter loads, whereas for strength, you're probably going to want some, you know, a pretty high peak intensity. So I think that's, that's another thing that comes to mind when thinking about strength training is, and, and, and something we apply with our athletes is having peak intensity high, basically year round. So, you know, even if we're in a hypertrophy focus phase for a strength athlete is, you know, we don't ever want them to, to kind of forget what it feels like to have a decently heavy weight on their back for a squat, for example. Um, so that's definitely another consideration, but yeah, man, uh, Adam, what, what holes can you poke there? Oh, I, I can't. Um, it, it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a very interesting topic. And, um, like w- one thing I heard you guys mention before, and I'm not sure where, where I heard it, but it was that the, the initial reps in a set may be more, maybe more of a contributing factor or, or may have a more of an effect on strength increase than the, the final reps, which is almost the opposite than what we think about when when we're thinking about hypertrophy you know the closer to failure like in a scientific term where you know we're recruiting more more threshold units more more muscle fibers um you know and, and hypertrophying all muscle fibers because we're getting more fatigued and you know in in layman's terms you know arnold was saying you know only the last two reps count or whatever it was um but yeah what, what's your kind of thoughts on that where it's like and it makes sense if you think about it okay well and i'm doing a squat i'm fresher so I'm putting more force into those more into those early reps because it's a higher velocity. Is is that the case? Go for it, Josh. Kick this one off. Yeah. So I I think kind of where where we're at in terms of framing this is that there's probably there doesn't appear to be an inherent benefit to tr- training very close to failure for a multi rep set for strength outcomes in and of themselves. So for example, if you have 80% of your squat one rep max on the barbell, um, you know, let's say you can do eight reps with that. And that would put you at a 10 RPE. I think intuitively, a lot of people think, okay, once I get to reps five, six, seven, eight, that's where the magic happens, right? Just like Arnold said, that's where the magic happens. Um, for hypertrophy, that's a very, very interesting discussion, which, which potentially we'll get into, but for strength, um, I don't, our current stance is that the juice probably isn't worth the squeeze, right? So we're not saying those, those reps are, are bad or that they're not contributing to strength, but there's, there's probably going to be a disproportionate fatigue cost of those repetitions later in the set compared to the ones earlier in the set. So kind of, if we follow that logic train, okay, there's, there's nothing inherently beneficial for grinding through those, those, uh, you know, RP nine, RP 10 reps for strength. So instead of doing, you know, two sets of seven uh, at RP nine with that 80% load. What if we did 
you know, that's 14 reps. What if we did a bunch of triples to get to that same total number of reps in our experience and kind of based on our extrapolations of the research, I wouldn't say that there's like, you know, a, a ton of evidence to support this claim, but you know, we think it, it would be a reasonable conclusion to say that that would lead to greater strength gains. And another downstream effect is maybe you can do more than 14 repetitions, right? Because in isolation, each of those repetitions is less fatiguing. So maybe we can do 18, 19 repetitions. Um, and then kind of, as you alluded to, uh, Adam, if we think about it from a force production perspective, things start to get really interesting, right? So if we're, if we're testing our one rep max squat, um, we're ultimately testing how much force we can produce, right? And if, if we kind of follow the principle of specificity, it probably makes sense to do a lot of reps in the gym with maximal force production. Now, if you were to really take that argument to its end, you would just train singles at 10 year round. But then you also think, okay, well, we have to accumulate sufficient training volume, perhaps for muscle growth reasons, uh, perhaps for just more repetitions, more squat repetitions, right? As well as uh, other factors that contribute to strength. So you say, okay, we know we're going to have to reduce the load at some point to accumulate sufficient training volume. Um, but we also want to stay as specific as possible. So how can we have high force production for that back off work? Um, and, and basically, if we think about a, a multi-rep set to failure, you definitely don't get stronger within that set, right? You definitely can't produce more force as you get more and more tired within a set. So your force production is highest with those first few reps. So if we, if we think about it through kind of that narrow lens of force production, um, you know, there is an argument to be made that, hey, maybe those first reps in the set are really the most specific for strength. Now, again, there's a lot more considerations than just force production, right? Maybe the fact of grinding through reps, even if they're not super specific from a force production perspective, is beneficial for a lifter from maybe a technique perspective ever. Um, but, you know, that, that's kind of our working model is that, you know, those, those reps early in the set, for most people, most of the time, will probably provide a majority of the strength stimulus. Got a few caveats. Um, first one, when we're talking about our force production model, I think it's very important to state that we're talking about force on the whole muscle level. So as we might get into here in a, in a few minutes, as far as the hypertrophy consideration, if we start thinking about the individual fiber level, that might change a little bit in terms of the way we're thinking about it. So when we're talking about strength, because it's a whole body kind of phenomenon that we're training for, we care about whole muscle force production. So that's, that's what we've seen uh, from a, you know, just from a theoretical basis, that's what's highest at the start of the set. The other thing that's really important um, is that to really eke out the most of the benefits, in our opinion, from repetitions far from failure, they still need to be performed with maximal uh, concentric intent is essentially what um, we're talking about. And actually, Chris Beardsley made a post the other day that I really like to kind of frame um, how, how I think this should kind of be thought of. He said, even when you're far from failure, every repetition should be a 10 RPE. And that's not RAR, that's RPE. So that's rating of perceived exertion. So meaning every rep you, every rep you perform should be performed with maximal effort. And going back to what you said, Adam, if we're performing, uh, you know, repetitions with high or maximal effort um, with loads that are heavy enough, that's going to recruit most of the high threshold motor units and theoretically maximize force production 
far from failure on the whole muscle level, which on our opinion, when we kind of retroactively made a model after looking at all the data, that seemed to be something that made sense from a theoretical perspective to kind of explain why we could train farther from failure and still see uh, similar strength gains to if you were to take a set all the way to failure. And I think that also has some implications in terms of the force you're going to produce farther from failure. If I'm just uh, kind of cruising through a repetition, that's going to be producing less force if we're just using the basic um, physics equation of force times mass times acceleration, force equals mass times acceleration, excuse me. Um, at a given load, if I'm accelerating that weight faster by using maximal effort to do so in the concentric, that's going to be more force production. And theoretically, if we're doing that with, uh, with more reps, that's going to lead to a, a total uh, force production that's higher than if we weren't using maximal effort every time. We think if you're going to try to kind of maximize the effectiveness of these kind of protocols far from failure, that's definitely what you're going to want to do. Um, so yeah, that was just a few caveats I wanted to, wanted to add on there, but yeah, I agree. So if you're, if you're using a load that allows you to do more repetitions, you should still be treating those initial few reps with, you know, you're, you're basically exploding or exactly yeah. the concentric part should be as, as fast as you possibly could, which, which right. in reality, isn't that fast. If it's a heavy weight, exactly. Off, exactly. You know, well, it's going right to going to jump off the That's ground a really good point like 150 <laughs> yes. kilos you're not going exactly. like, well, yeah. to yeah yeah um, so we try to always kind of capture this discussion in the sense that we're generally talking about loads that are greater than 70 percent of one rm so like you said even though you're training fast that you know in a relative like an absolute sense of resistance training that's still pretty slow it's just you're trying to move a given load as fast as possible yeah it's it's not like uh you're doing like jump squats or something like exactly. that. exactly exactly yeah, yeah. So, so then I, I guess, um, Zach, you, you mentioned there when we're force is, you know, we were, it's like when we're training for force or we're expressing our strength, we were recruiting all muscle fibers. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and how, how that's affected throughout the, the set and as we get closer to failure and what that means practically? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to state here is I'm not going to try to pretend that I'm a motor unit physiologist by any means. This is, uh, you know, um, definitely something that we're still learning a, a ton about and could change our minds on. But at the current moment, um, kind of extrapolating some of the, the data on this stuff, um, there's a really good modeling paper by Poppin that uh, Greg Knuckles actually had in his article kind of talking about um, the effective reps model, if you're familiar with that, um, that we think is pretty, pretty helpful in this discussion. Um, now the caveat there, that's isometric research, which is a little bit different than what we're talking about. Um, and so we can kind of, kind of cross the gap a little bit with some of the EMG research, although there's other stuff out there to say that EMG definitely shouldn't be used to directly infer, uh, like the hypertrophic potential of, of a repetition, for example, but kind of culminating all that stuff together. I think the, the nugget to, to kind of take away from this is when effort is high enough and, and in the right conditions, motor unit recruitment will be maximized as, as, as much as that load will allow us to. So in our model, if you're training with a heavy enough load, which seems to be greater than 70% of one RM or so, and you're using that ballistic concentric intent, the effort or the conditions are uh, such that you're going to recruit all the motor units. Now the, the picture kind of gets a little bit different. We start talking about hypertrophy because of the, the force velocity relationship on the fiber level, if we actually have a slower contraction while trying to move that rep as fast as possible, 
that actually might lead to more tension on the fiber level, which if we want to go into the hypertrophy kind of discussion, theoretically that could lead to greater anabolic signaling and all the good stuff for muscle growth. So um, I don't even know if I answered the question, but that was just kind of my ramble on that. Effort matters for motor uterine recruitment, but um, I think it's, it's interesting though, because I think I've seen some other data where I think, you know, the kind of the general stuff I see this discuss is that we need to be really close to failure to maximize motor unit recruitment. We've also seen some stuff where like really ballistic contractions with like 20%, as long as you're doing that with extremely uh, ballistic contraction speeds can still elicit really, really high motor unit recruitment. And sometimes I've seen maximal. So I think the kind of the nugget I still like to come back to is that effort is what kind of dictates that. And then we can kind of talk about some of the nuances there, but yeah, back to my first caveat, not a motor unit physiologist by any means. It's just my understanding of the topic at the current moment. So, so just to jump in here quick, um, I think again, kind of going back to talking about our company name, like data-driven strength, what does that actually mean? It's yes, looking at the published research, but also understanding the the limitations part of the limitation in this case is like zach said we're not motor unit physiologists but i i would bet that even if you ask like the most knowledgeable person in the world on this stuff that they would have all the answers they would probably be the first to point out the things we still need to figure out right so again is that a limitation of research no but it's still something that it's it's a it's a it's a gap we have to fill when applying these things in practice, right? We, we can't just be nihilistic when, when writing a, a training program for an individual, right? Um, and then the next point I would say is, this is why we put a little bit more emphasis on the longitudinal research and then work sure. backwards. So Adam, you had mentioned like kind of our model for uh, strength outcomes and how proximity to failure influences that. We didn't, we, we didn't necessarily go into analyzing that literature saying, you know, this is the model. Let's see if it fits. It's more like, okay, this is the trend we're seeing. Let's work backwards and let's see if we can develop some sort of working model. And then we can use that model to develop hypotheses. And then when we read new research, we can say, does this, does this hypothesis predict the outcome we see? And it, it does a good amount of the time. Sometimes it doesn't, right? It's things can get interesting, right? So again, point being, is there, there's still a lot of stuff that we just don't know for sure. And um, also second point is, is we generally like to lean on the, the practical research when we're actually thinking about applying this stuff in the gym. Yeah. Sure. You just, just discard the stuff that doesn't agree with your hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a joke. Um, yeah. So yeah, you made a good point around the uh, like the recruitment of all motor units. With I think I read before where if you just jump, you can recruit. So I think like you mentioned, Zach, it's it's not it's the recruitment of all uh, motor units, but at a, a slow speed. But when you're trying to push it fast, not a slow speed yeah. where you just yeah, I'm just going slow. So you know, I'm recruiting all, and I think that's where. Uh, and then we start to talk about the kind of hypertrophy side of things. That's when people can you know get caught up in the oh well, slow reps or uh you know oh you have to like do super slow reps because it's you know just various reasons that people give but, but so then we're talking about what you just mentioned there around how it potentially may differ from uh, hypertrophy training do, do you want to touch on that a little bit 
Yeah, so I think this is something we've we've thought quite a bit about. Um, we recently wrote an article kind of touching on this topic in terms of like proximity to failure and resistance training, which is generally the way we kind of uh, um, talk about the differences between the two. Because um, like we said, for the most part, hypertrophy training is in my, like the way I like to describe it. It's kind of like choose your own adventure. Like you can high loads, low loads, machines, free weights, um, fast tempos, slow tempos, so long as effort's sufficient in that case. And like, you, you can just do a ton of stuff. Um, and from like a higher level perspective, we think that the proximity failure thing is probably one that might differ between the two. But um, again, when we kind of look at the, you know, the research from a broad perspective, and especially with heavy loads, we think that it's, it, there's a chance that once the load is heavy enough and you're using that, you know, maximal concentric intent, you can probably st- still stay pretty far from failure and, and might maybe even out of that typical kind of effective zone of like zero to four RER. That's pretty, pretty common to hear. Um, we think from a practical perspective, that's a really good recommendation because as we were kind of talking about earlier, you layer on the fact of RER accuracy issues of somebody saying something's, you know, two RER when in reality it's five RER. Um, and, and that's just, that complicates the issue a little bit more. So if we're making our recommendations a little bit closer to failure, that's probably going to make sure that we're within whatever effort threshold is necessary to maximize growth. That's going to help with that. But, uh, but yeah, I think uh, in general, kind of our reading of the literature, um, you can probably stay a little bit farther from failure than, than maybe is commonly said, so long as the conditions are, are sufficient, which is like a load somewhere above a 10 RM and you're using maximal concentric intent. Um, but in, in general, I think uh, from a hypertrophy perspective, the other thing we're not totally sure on is, is metabolic stress and kind of how that fits into this equation. I think it's pretty common to hear nowadays that mechanical tension is the primary driver, which we would agree with that. Um, I do think if you're kind of like taking our strength stuff, which is, you know, a lot of people will kind of hear us talk about that. And essentially what that does is eliminates all metabolic stress. So when we're talking about hypertrophy, even for a power lifter and kind of like a periodization model to make sure that we're not putting all our eggs in one basket that, uh, like we said, we're not totally sure about. We have a model, but when new research comes out, we don't know if our predictions are actually going to be accurate with the, the new stuff that comes out. So we don't want to make sure we don't want to put all of our eggs in that basket if we're not totally sure. So we still like to have um, some training that's closer to failure, pretty typical um, hypertrophy oriented training in that six to 12 rep range, you know, somewhere one to three reps in reserve. So I think, uh, again, I don't know if I even claim close to answering the question, but hopefully that provides some, <laughs> some, some thoughts and for discussion. Just, yeah. just to, just to quickly add in a, a practical nugget in, you know, even though we, we might make the point that, Hey, we think there's sufficient research to at least consider the possibility that training with greater than four IR you know, if you configure your training appropriately, that you can still maximize uh, outcomes. I would, I would add the caveat that in practice, and just from like a recommendation perspective, if you're going to miss one way, like accidentally training too close to failure or training uh, too far from failure, we'd probably rather have you accidentally train too close to failure. Um, You know, going back to the anecdotes that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, like it's, it's highly unlikely you're going to not see results if you're, you're training pretty close to failure. So like Zach mentioned in that article we wrote, we tried to really frame it around, hey, this is a tool in, the, in your tool belt. It's not better. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I can't really think of a case where it'd be better, but if we have a strength athlete 
who's focusing on um, hypertrophy outcomes, maybe through, you know, an accessory lift, maybe a hack squat, but we still want them to get, you know, some degree of practice on their competition squat. Maybe we can do sets of three or four with 80% of their one rep max on the competition squat so that they're not smoked going into those hack squats so they can take them to a true two RAR. That's an example of when we would apply these concepts for, for hypertrophy outcomes. Um, again, just kind of wanted to, to add that practical nugget. Yeah, you touched on at the beginning that muscle size, neurological adaptations, and then I don't know if you mentioned it, but like scale, I think you, you might have mentioned it, are like the kind of primary components to, to strength. And one thing I've always thought about is like, let's say we, we, we like, we matched like bone length and femur length and pain threshold, et cetera, and, and try to boil it down just to those three things. With the likes of like a big Rami, who's like 320 pounds on stage, if he started squatting regularly, um, would he be like one of the strongest powerlift? Oh, well, he, you know, would he? Because maybe he doesn't squat, I don't know. Maybe he just does like hack squats and stuff. And I, I guess there's, it's pretty similar, but like it's not the same. Would he be like the uh, super strong uh, squatter? Well, he, it's, it's, it's like an obvious question, but like would he be the strongest? Right, is right. The, is the right. question. Um, so I think, I mean, this just goes back to how many factors influence strength, right? Like, um, you did mention holding constant, a lot of like the bone and all that stuff. Like there's a ton of like internal stuff to the muscle in terms of like architecture and stuff that impacts, like an example people always give, like, you know, you see a super skinny dude that like pulling like 600 pounds. It's like, yes, that seems to go against the, the fact that size helps strength but there's a ton of like factors we don't even see that contribute to at a given size this person can more effectively transmit force to the barbell and all that kind of stuff so we're kind of talking within an individual um i I mean just from a conceptual basis i obviously can't say this was a ton of confidence but if he has a ton of muscle mass and um you know i think he's going to have a very very high ceiling for for strength expression it's just a matter of training specifically enough to have all all those morphological adaptations in terms like architecture and stuff. And then also just a ton of skill work that needs to happen with heavy loads for him to kind of increase the ceiling, but would he be the strongest? I have no idea. I think there are probably some genetic factors that training doesn't influence that predispose, um, you know, some people just to be really, really good at lifting heavy weights and other people maybe are a little bit more predisposed to size. Like I'm sure that's, totally reasonable to 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 think about um and that might you know be part of some of the self-selection process like everybody has their kind of bodybuilding phase but maybe that's part of the reason some people really take to lifting heavy weights and some people lift to just you know throwing a stringer on and flexing in front of the mirror you know like i I think that's probably probably part of that selection process but yeah i I can't say with a ton of confidence whether you'd be the strongest but from a theoretical basis if he has a ton a ton of muscle mass that hasn't really been trained to like express a one around, I would imagine that, you know, he's got a lot of, a lot of room to improve there. Josh, I don't know if you agree. No, I would just say, just to sum that up is all things held equal. He, I'm pretty confident in saying he, he would be stronger than if he had smaller legs. Like that's just what it would come right. down to is right within that individual, all things held equal, bigger legs, stronger, smaller legs, probably not as strong. Mm, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> 
and then and then to to touch on the the neurological adap- uh, adaptation bit so you know we kind of touched on a little bit and i've definitely talked about another podcast a lot more depth about training for hypertrophy specifically but can people control neurological adaptations and we're, when we're talking about neurological adaptations what does it actually even mean um and, and is it just something that just is a, is a byproduct of training with heavy weights or is this something that people can actually influence um again is there a genetic component to that what are your what are you guys thoughts go for it zach go i feel like it. you have good answers here yeah, I mean, so what do, what do we actually mean about neurological adaptations? I think it's going back to some of the motivation stuff. That's kind of, you know, what we're thinking about. You have like muscle fiber conduction velocity. So like the the rate at which the axon potential is sent down the nerve. You have motor unit synchronization. You have muscle coordination, which is like the, the, the uh, I don't know how to say it essentially the coordination between the muscle that's actually doing the, doing the work and the opposite muscle that kind of holds the joint in a stable position, that's muscle coordination. So like all those factors are kind of tuned to a task. Now, um, does that, is that like controllable? Like you said, I, I, I have a, I'm definitely not something I've looked into a ton, but I, I don't think it's like something that's like super duper specific to like, if I train for, you know, with 80% weights, these neurological adaptations are going to happen. And if I train with 60% weights, it's completely different. Like, I don't think that's the case. There might be slight, um, like, for example, I think rate of force development is something that comes to mind. Um, so like if you train with extremely high velocities, so like power training for like athletes, you'll see, you know, better increases in like early rate of force development. I would imagine that if you train with really, really slow speeds of like very, very heavy weights, you might have better adaptations like late rate of force development, for example. So there might be like some specific, um adaptations as far as that stuff goes but but yeah neurological adaptation is like a very large umbrella and i don't think we have it fully understood quite yet um but that those are kind of the few things that come to mind um and i don't quite remember the other part of the question so i'm gonna punt it to josh it's like third time i've said that but yeah i'm really blanking we'll we'll punt it back to adam and make sure we actually answer the question no no i think you answered it and and like one thing i've heard is and i don't know if it's correct or not but like at a certain stage, like to get stronger than someone's already pretty well trained is like the only real way they can get stronger is by, is by getting bigger. Let's say the programming is decent. So then that would kind of mean that neurological adaptations and skill to an extent are almost capped. I mean, of course in the Olympics, for example, they'll, they'll train for four years to, to add a kilo on and they're not getting heavier. So there's some sort of skill improvement and they've got it down to a T. Um, mm-hmm. But is that would would that train of thought be be right or correct where it's like well yeah ipf world the champion like if he wants to get stronger or then improving his skill a little bit here or there like if he wants to get significantly stronger he kind of needs to get significantly bigger this is a very good question so, one i've been thinking about a ton recently <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's this is a timely question because zach and i were just discussing this probably like three or four days ago um because people that have have like followed our work will probably like understand that our bias is towards, Hey, especially when you're trained, like you said, Adam, um, increasing muscle mass is probably the most potent way to increase your strength at your desired task. Um, the primary reason there is because those neurological adaptations seem to kind of fizzle out. Right. So like, um, but that's also the case for muscle growth, but, 
theoretically, muscle growth is infinitely scalable, right? So to a degree, right? So there, there's kind of like, uh, there's kind of an asymptote there. So, you know, there's, there's, you probably have like a practical natural limit to the muscle mass, uh, you can carry. Um, but we think from a practical perspective, if you've been training for a handful of years, that probably the most potent way to increase your strength is to increase your muscle mass. That's kind of been our position, but there, there's, there's a lot more considerations that go into this. And I think, a, a, a really big one here is weight class restriction, right? So if you have somebody that's at the, the top end of their weight class um, and, you know, the, the probably in our eyes, your best bet is to increase or improve their body composition. So increase the muscle mass they're carrying primarily in the prime movers for the power lifts. If you're a power lifter um, at that, you know, at that body weight, but let's say you can't reasonably increase or improve their body composition within their weight class, then it's like, you kind of, you kind of shrug and you say, okay, what are our options here? Um, can we add, can we like slowly improve body composition over time? Probably, but maybe the smarter route in that case would be to make sure that we can get every little half a kilo out of their technique as possible. So again, to, to kind of summarize, Muscle mass is probably your best bet if you're trained, but if, if there's a practical consideration in which the amount of muscle mass you can reasonably gain is very, very small, you might want to explore other avenues. Um, so yeah, that, that's where my head's at on the topic. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I would agree. It's, it's just so hard to say that like, you know, somebody who's been training for a super long time and Adam, you're probably the perfect person to talk about this too, is like, you know, you guys that literally spend the entire year purely dedicated to putting on muscle mass where, you know, some of the, our, our phases for a power lift, there maybe are dedicated more towards, you know, optimizing strength through a meet or something like that. So we're sacrificing a little bit of training time away from that goal. You guys are purely dedicating towards that outcome. And still it's, it's, it's a challenge to, to dramatically change your stage weight year to year or, or you know, every competition or so I would imagine. Um, so, you know, taking that anecdote on board, it's like, how, how much are we, you know, moving the needle from a, from a polyfish perspective before weight, weight class restricted to actually improve their one RM from an increase in muscle mass. Now to kind of fight against what I've just said, I think there's also a few things that we don't simply just don't know. Um, uh, I think, uh, we definitely don't know, like how much is a meaningful amount of muscle mass in terms of, you know contributing to an increase in your total and just like you said like you know as you get more trained the amount of muscle mass you can gain tapers off but in the competition the amount needed to you know jump a podium spot or whatever also becomes you know smaller and smaller and smaller so we're you know able to fight for every kilo on the platform we can get because that actually might make the difference so i think even if it's a small amount of muscle mass if that can contribute to a meaningful amount on our total that might be still worth it so that's just another thing to consider and then there's also, you know, other considerations of like, aside from the potential increase in like contractile force of the muscle mass, there's like mechanical properties of simply just being a bigger human that might help as well. So like, it's like kind of twofold and, and, and that additional muscle mass might um, help your strength uh, in that regard too. So I think, yeah, it's, it's tough to say, right? Because if, if somebody's, you know, super advanced just from like a super baseline perspective, they have a ton less muscle mass to gain. 
Um, but we also think that like from a neurological gain perspective, it's like, doesn't seem to be a ton left there either. So it's, we're kind of in a rock and a hard place. And it's like, which one of those is more modifiable for the individual in front of us. And that probably dictates the, the direction we're going to go to. Like if somebody has really, really poor body composition, maybe that's the direction we go. Whereas, you know, another person is like, you know, 10% on the 10% body fat on the platform. It's like, okay, maybe we just got to, um, we just got to really maximize skill with this individual. So I think, you know, there's a ton we don't know about this and I'm, I'm hoping to get some more data on this and, and, and kind of explore this question a little bit more. That's kind of where my thoughts are at. Yeah. There, there, there seems to be a, a trade-off with improving body composition um, and strength at some point, because I, but I know myself um, when I got super lean, it's uh, yeah, I'm like, you maybe 15 kilos lighter than my best, but my strength is like, just shot and I, right. I remember alberto nunez a couple of years ago did the same not the same thing but he actually competed at wmbf worlds in national bodybuilding then he did like a, a powerlifting show if he, he was super light he said i'll be in a lighter weight class and i think he said it was a, a bad idea and and i totally uh in a gym that i was in many years ago like all the powerlifters were just like like marshmallow men they're like yeah. They didn't have yeah. ankles, you know, they're just, right. like <laughs> but they're super strong, but it's probably not the best. I mean, they're strong, but I don't even know if they're competitive. Um, I have actually, I actually I'm, haven't been in a gym in a, since 2020 because it, it, it closed oh, down here. So um, I haven't really been spending the last year building muscle. I've probably been in the gym for three months in the last 12, 12 months. Hey, you got that hack squat now. So now, now you're going to yeah, yeah. beef up those quads. But um, no, I guess one question I have for you, just like anecdotally, um, just like I, I know the percentages are kind of hard to even say, but like from on your way down to like stage condition, is there a body weight that you feel like, you know, you're considerably lighter, but your strength definitely hasn't like taken, uh, taken a ton off. And there's like a point or like a threshold where you're like, that's when it just starts to tank. I'm just curious. Yeah. I think it's hard to say um, because well, when you're just in a constant deficit and you're doing for a, bit, a bit of cardio as well, or a lot of cardio to try and get that off. So you're in a, a state of just relative energy deficiency. So it's not like a stop to the weight and say, okay, let's eat up and hold this body yeah. weight. Um, but yeah, I think like the, it's like that, that set point theory of when you get below that, I think it's hard to say for me, cause I, I got my body fat tested towards the end of my last prep, but I didn't get it tested throughout. Um, but yeah, I think when I'm getting below maybe like, 12 percent body fat that's when my sleep starts to you yeah. know go and, and that's when at the point where I'm, I'm i don't really like squatting anymore and i start yeah. to do some machine squats right. or hack squats and um, so so I, I don't know i think maybe it is like the same way when you hear about that body fat set point theory it's like mm. getting below that um, and it's it's a really hard range to to pick as well i always tell people just like think of uh, your body fat when you're 14 years old because you don't interfere with diet really before 14 after 14 people start playing around with diets and trying to lose a bit of fat or gain a bit of muscle and then kind of skews your natural body fat level so for me it's actually i was i wasn't fat but i was like i wasn't like skinny like you know so i think just where i am now is probably like relatively relatively fat (laughs) it's probably my best uh, body composition but it's it's probably uh well, it's, it is definitely inter-individual, but it's interesting because like, like we, we said, like genetics and things like that are going to play a huge part of it. I, I'd never done a powerlifting block ever in my training. Years ago, I did like a, the, the Lane Norton style training where it's just fat, the fat program, the P-H-A-T, what's it called? Power hypertrophy 
I don't even know what the A stands for. Um, something training. Um, but I was just like, okay, let's just do three reps on the deadlift on on Tuesdays, and then next week we'll just add in two point five kilos. But my deadlift max was like, I, I never did one rep max, and then I was like, okay, uh, six hundred pounds is set two hundred seventy two kilos, so I'm gonna do it, <laughs> and just lifted it. I could lift it, um, but I haven't. Wow. I haven't done it in well, I haven't tried it in years, but it's for me it's like the trade off is not worth it as a as you know, as a as a bodybuilder. It's just I could get injured. Sure. It's pretty pretty stupid to do that. Um but then my squat sucks, you know, like, like the max squat is probably hundred and eighty five at, at best ever, which That's is true. like not, not yeah, and then my bench as well. I don't think I've ever benched more than hundred and forty kilos. But at the same time arms. Yeah, I've never I've never practice that either so that's that's the really interesting thing so a final kind of topic i want to touch on and it's kind of a bit of a a bit of a kind of jump away from what we're talking about but progressive overload i know you guys talked about this before um and like you always hear well like you hear people talk really in really basic terms oh if you get bigger or stronger you have to progressive you have to progressively overload just progressively overload and eat in a surplus that's all you need to do um and then, and I noticed it with clients that I have as well, because a lot of my clients would be considered like more advanced or at least in the in- intermediate phase, they get kind of bummed out when they're like, oh, I didn't add, I didn't add uh, weight to the bar this week. And uh, so like, oh, I'm kind of a bit pissed off or I'm not, I'm not progressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously now I've been lifting for like 12, 13 years, that obviously no, that doesn't happen all the time. So does the, do we, do we add weight to progress and to build muscle or strength or do does our increase in strength or muscle size allow us to add the weight? What do you? What yes. Do you so yes, I think answer. we, <laughs> I think we would uh, definitely. Brought, shout out to Brian Miner for mm. obviously like framing our thoughts on this, and I'm sure a lot of people's thoughts. I think um, probably the, the lens that we like to approach this concept is probably primarily from a psychological perspective. So before I get to that, I would say on on such a like a short time scale that we often get caught up in when we're thinking about progression is like we we just don't think like week to week changes in performance are something to get too worked up about. Are we saying that you shouldn't care about your performance and you shouldn't be keeping an eye on it and you know keeping your finger on the pulse? Absolutely not, but that short of time scale, there are a lot of there are going to be a lot of fluctuations influencing performance, random noise in the system, right? Maybe there are things you can point to outside of the gym, etc. Um, and and in the powerlifting realm, uh, a lot of people will kind of uh, you know get worked up if if their triple at an RP eight on the squat is five kilos less than last week and think, oh, this program isn't working. What we often like to point out is. No, like at the end of the day, you still got that heavy exposure that's going to improve your your uh, skill. That that's not to say that triple that was a quote unquote down performance wasn't effective. Um, we just got to keep our eye on this, see how it progresses, and and let's see how it kind of plays out over these coming weeks. Um, but something I would add is, is that um, I think that from a strength perspective, adding load does kind of make sense because that allows us to get closer and closer to higher peak intensities. So something we like to do is throughout the course of a training block is increase the peak intensity that the individual is working up to. So 
you know, from that perspective, maybe a proactive increase in load week to week does make sense. But in terms of the actual physiological outcomes, I don't think that, you know, that is actually influencing, you know, kind of the stimulus that is that that we're incurring, right? So I think the biggest thing I like to think about here is just the time scale we're thinking of, like, we, we often get caught up in, did the last three weeks of training work? Whereas we're like, let's take a step back, let's accumulate like maybe 10, 12, 14 weeks of training, then we can see whether the training worked. Um, are you able to, to use a little bit more weight on your sets of 10 on dumbbell bench press next cycle, right? 12 weeks later, that's something we're interested in as opposed to how was week three compared to week four. So um, Zach, you can, you can fill in any, any gaps I left. No, I mean, I think I generally agree. I guess, tell me if this is a bad example, guys, if I'm thinking about it wrong, but the, the way I always like to think about this kind of stuff is like, if adding weight to the bar or like heavier weights were like inherently more beneficial, then we would see a difference in hypertrophy between high load versus low load training, but we don't. So like, to, to me, it's like, we're just trying to get a relative stimulus, which is again, what Brian Miner has kind of popularized or is kind of trying to keep pace with that relative effort threshold that stimulates all the good anabolic stuff that we're trying to do with resistance training. So like, that's the way I think about it is like, I don't think adding weight to the bar is necessarily inherently an anabolic. It's just, you know, to get the, all the good stuff going in terms of the chemical signaling and whatnot, we need to be within this relevant effort threshold for a, you know, a duration of time or volume that um, is sufficient for the individual. So to do so, we need to progressively overload in some way to keep pace with that kind of threshold of effort that is uh, going to make all that good stuff happen. So that's just kind of the way I think about it. Is that a good example or? I think, yeah. I think that like a uh, kind of a really simple way to frame that concept Zach is that like performance is not equal to the stimulus. Yeah. Right. So for sure. Uh, another, another example of this is um, exercise order. So in the research uh, for hypertrophy outcomes, it doesn't really seem to matter where an exercise is placed within a workout. Um, in terms of like how that's contributing to, to increases in muscle size. So point being is at the end of a workout, you you probably don't have as much gas or you probably, your performance probably isn't quite as high, right? So from a hypertrophy perspective, there doesn't seem to be anything inherently beneficial to your strength levels or your performance, right? Um, again, it, it comes down to like the relative effort we're doing. So like, whether our, our 12 RM is very high or artificially low, it doesn't really seem to matter, right? As long as we're kind of meeting that effort threshold that's programmed. For strength, that's obviously going to be different. So using the exercise order literature as, a, as an example, again, for strength, exercise order does seem to, to influence strength gains. So um, putting those, those exercises you want to get stronger at early in a session um, does seem to improve strength outcomes compared to if you were to put it later in a session. So I think that that can be really helpful for, you know, whether your goal is powerlifting or bodybuilding or a mix of the two, like for hypertrophy outcomes, the absolute performance doesn't really seem to matter. Um, but for strength, the absolute performance does seem to matter at least to a certain degree. Um, yeah. Another so, example is that you literally just posted about it the other day, Josh is like rest, pause, drop sets. I think that's another right. super common example for like hypertrophy training. If the absolute load matters, those, those, uh, protocols wouldn't be effective because they literally artificially right. harm your performance, but they, in some cases seem to be just as good and sometimes a little bit better. So I think that's another 
uh, example to kind of turn to. Yeah. 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 So, so let's say you had like a poor day. Uh, I don't know. You had a poor day in the gym, but the, it, it, and you were using less weight um, or you hit less reps than previous, you potentially could be getting the same stimulus as the good day because the perceived effort or the proximity to failure on that day was actually the same. But then there's probably other factors like you didn't sleep well, so your testosterone right. is lower. So, right. yeah. But in I, the I, so, uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'd cut him off. No, go on. Go on. I was oh, just going to oh. say, I think the, the factor that we've been thinking a ton about is like, um, you know, we recently read a review paper on central fatigue, which is, you know, kind of tangential to this conversation. But, but um, we think the perception of effort can be manipulated by like a ton of this stuff. So like, it might not be the case that the absolute load you're lifting from sleeping poorly is a bad thing. But if you come into the gym off a of poor night's sleep, your ability to reach task failure may be significantly harmed just because everything feels harder from a poor night's sleep. So like that might be something to consider is like, how hard something feels might be impacted by these poor recovery factors. And like, that might be why some people have the anecdote of like saying that you got to maximize performance hypertrophy. It may be just be that what seems to correlate with that is also people's perception of effort gets all messed up when I have poor night's sleep, poor nutrition. Um, I do an exercise later in the workout, that kind of thing. It's just like that ability to get close to failure just seems to be um, maybe artificially harmed. Yeah. And, and just to add one quick thing is like, I, I mentioned the exercise order literature for hypertrophy indicates that it doesn't really matter where an exercise is placed to, to contribute to increases in muscle size. But again, when, when we're thinking about these studies, we got to think about the context in which these people are training. There's probably a research assistant right next to them, right? So if you're training alone in your basement and you're um, coming off a, a whatever, a poor night's sleep or you're late in a session, right? maybe your ability to get to a true RP8, like it says on the program is diminished, um, which I think is often overlooked. Whereas if you have a research assistant next to you, that perception of effort, um, you know, even though the perception of effort of getting to a true RP8 is harder, you can actually do it because the research assistant is right next to you. You kind of have that, that extra social pressure, if you will. So um, again, there's a research and then there's a practical application. I still think that manipulating exercise order for a hypertrophy program is probably smart. Um, I just think it's, it's again, there, there's a lot of caveats here. So what, what, do, you, <laughs> what do you mean by uh, manipulating is, is smart? So point being is I still think like a troubleshooting strategy for um, somebody that's just focused on hypertrophy would be to bump up a given exercise or group of exercises earlier in a session. I think that could still be a, you know, still improve hypertrophy outcomes, even though the research doesn't indicate that's the case. Because we're thinking about the actual human doing the training, not the human that's right next to a research assistant that's making sure they're going to true failure, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So again, this is where different personality types might come in. You might have individual A where you know, no matter what you, what you say, they're going to bring it. Um, but the other individual is, you know, I know that if, if things aren't perfect for them, they're not going to get to a true RPA. They'll kind of lie to themselves yeah. about, about their proximity to failure. So like there's this, like it's a human that's doing the training in the real world and their ability to accurately rate 
that, hey, that set of high bar squats was a true RP8, um, or their ability to actually achieve that can be diminished artificially, and that might influence their strength gains or their hypertrophy gains. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, I hundred percent know what you mean. Like practically speaking, if if someone has a a, a you know hypertrophy training, they're a weak body part. Like moving that to the top of the session, it's probably a good idea. Um, right. Yeah, and a hundred percent, the the lab is gonna be a lot different when there's your. I, I can't even remember the name of the the effect, but we see it in in dietary recall as well, or or dietary mm. tracking. When, when people know that they're gonna be tracked, or they they change their yep. actions. Um, like I, like I've noticed it firsthand training at home for the last year. I've got a got a rack. It's just it's just not as good. In fact, I'm actually yep. wearing knee sleeves right now because I was training <laughs> before this, and I I probably still have a few exercises to do. But it, I, my training is not nowhere near as intense. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's just yeah. It, but in, in mm-hmm. an environment with a gym with other people there, um, yep. and I you know even if I'm not like training because because I'm trying to look good, it's still different. You know, so that, that makes I a think- lot of sense. I think a lot of people might hear us say, hey, these factors might influence your perception of effort and think, oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply to me. Mm. And and they might have a point, like certain people might have a point, but like, like Adam, you're a, you're an elite bodybuilder and this is still something that influences you. Like, I think, I think it's just something that is, is almost unavoidable and yeah. it's worth considering. So, I mean, I, I think... Yeah right exactly um so yeah Mm. and then final question for you guys is so you're called data-driven strength uh what what kind of data do you guys track like when you're doing because when we're matching the the subjective data the objective data uh, whatever sort of data when you're trying to maximize someone's performance and it may be different from each person but what do you guys track from a from a client's perspective to to maximize their results Yeah. So the first thing to point out here is, again, this will probably be framed around strength outcomes primarily and the differences and, you know, how you track things for hypertrophy might be a little bit different. Um, We definitely, and and all credit to reactive training systems for kind of um, pushing us in this direction, or at least, you know, their stuff is definitely convincing to us that strength training should be outcome driven. So if we think about hypertrophy, it's very hard to say how, it's it's very hard to get an accurate measurement of how big your quad is on a given day but luckily for strength we can get a pretty good idea of how strong your squat is on a given day right we can work you up to a single at a 7 or an 8 rpe we can calculate an estimated 1 rm and we can get a decent ballpark of how strong you are so we like to take an outcome driven approach in which we say okay let's see this training cycle through maybe it's about 10 to 12 weeks something like that we can see, okay, how did this trend? We're not zooming in too much on any one single estimated one RM data point. We can say, okay, in general, was this progress satisfactory? Was it not satisfactory, et cetera? Then we can troubleshoot from there. Um, because going back to kind of that strength versus neural uh, discussion we had, this corrects for a lot of the unknowns in what's actually contributing to increases in strength, right? So you know, kind of our mental model of, hey, hypertrophy is probably pretty dang important for most people that can inform the starting point. But once you accumulate training outcome driven training data on that individual, um, that should probably prevail over kind of your hypothetical thinking, right? If you have indication that individual A 
their squat response to this type of protocol, that should prevail over my intuition or my best guess based on the research. So, um, frankly, our biases too, right? Right. It, it, you know, the biases are never going to go away, but that at least gets us a little bit closer to having, you know, our biases out of the picture as much as possible. Um, on a, on a shorter term timescale, we do a couple things with athletes in terms of monitoring. So shout out to Drake Easterhot, who is kind of our, our, um, our athlete monitoring guy who has helped us, um, you know, create some of these systems. So basically we have, uh, like a weekly, uh, wellness slash fatigue questionnaire, and it'll ask questions, uh, just related to overall recovery, soreness. Um, we'll also, you know, put a, a, a spot in there where the athlete can request changes going forward, that type of thing. And we, we primarily view that as a conversation starter more than anything. So, you know, if, if this individual typically rates that their sleep is very good or good, and all of a sudden they say they had a very bad week of sleep, that's something we might want to talk about, right? So to summarize on the long term, we like to take an outcome driven approach, look at their training data, what seems to work best, go from there and continue to kind of explore different options and take notes on what seems to work for them. On a short-term time scale, we think about athlete monitoring as a lot of conversations and, and, and finding ways to have conversation starters for that individual. Um, so yeah, that, those are kind of my thoughts and Zach, I'll kick it to you if you want to add anything. Yeah, really all I think is always important to encapsulate any discussion on what to track athlete monitoring data. Um, the, the principle we always need to abide by is, you know, only track what's necessary and actually is going to influence your management. I think, um, especially for spreadsheet geeks like us that want to track all this stuff and like try to get all these fancy correlations to like try to optimize things. The reality is um, a lot of that stuff can give you a false sense of confidence um, and it can, um, you know, just detract from, from what is actually going to help you uh, change, you know, your decision-making or alter um, your, your actual um, intervention with a, with a given athlete. And like Josh said, like honing in on the, the stuff that is actually going to allow you to be outcome driven or as close to what you actually want to know is usually going to be um, the most helpful. So like in the, the example of strength, we use estimated one around because it's a slightly less taxing version of a very, very high intensity exposure because in powerlifting or strength sport, that's what exactly what we're training for, right? Like we want to know a one around. So that's why, you know, that's, that's helpful. And that's going to directly influence our management because it's so close to what we actually want to know. Um, the farther and farther you get away from those, those uh, measurements, the, the less and less useful they can become. And they can just start to cloud the picture of like what's actually helpful and what's actually useful. So I just think that's always important to discuss in any uh, thing about athlete monitoring. And then the other thing is there's not like a right set of things to track, right? Like the thing I always like to point out too is every single measurement you have is going to have limitations, but being very familiar with a given tool allows you to know the blind spots and you're able to increase your, the rate and the success um, at which you can pick up patterns for a given athlete. So if I'm really like volume is a perfect example, there's a hundred different ways to measure volume, but if you measure volume in a similar way for every athlete that you work with, so long as it's applicable and it's not like a offshoot scenario where you'd want to use something else clearly, um, that allows you to become familiar with that measurement so that you can start to pick up patterns sooner 
for a new client or somebody that's starting to show a similar kind of archetype to an athlete you maybe have worked with in the past and they needed XYZ change. So I think that's another thing of, you know, kind of decreasing the amount of tools that you're using so you can get really, really familiar with patterns and trends. And like I said, the limitations of those measurements ultimately allows you to make um, better decisions with those tools because they all are inherently limited. But once you kind of realize their blind spots, I think it becomes a little bit more uh, useful. Mm, Awesome answer. So where can we find out more about you guys and what you do? Yes, you can check out some of our stuff at data-drivenstrength.com. You can find us on Instagram. My handle is josh.datadrivenstrength and Zach's is zach.datadrivenstrength. And um, yeah, if you will, if you have any questions or disagree with something we, we said in this podcast, we'd love to chat. Shoot us a, a DM or get in contact with us through the website. And yeah, uh, Adam, thanks a ton for having us on. Excellent questions and enjoy the chat. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great thanks, time. Guys.